Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us at Back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we continue a critically important series on celebrating the Word of God with Dr. John Newfeld. So let's listen now as we turn in our text to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. The Bible is a unique book, and by that I mean there is no other book in human history that even comes close to resembling this book. I know that I'm supposed to say that, after all, I am the Bible teacher for Back to the Bible Canada, but I'm not offering a subjective opinion. What I say can be objectively verified. The Bible is, of course, not the only supposed holy book. For instance, in Hinduism, the Vedas contains a collection of hymns of praise to to various deities, a priestly handbook for the performance of sacrifices, then various chants, and also various incantations. They're considered to be about 2,500 years old, but the Vedas are not the only Hindu holy book. Hindus don't stress correct doctrine in the way that Christians do. Rather, they encourage a wide range of what we might call even contradictory thought, although I think Hindus would argue that they are able to assimilate a wide variety of divergent thinking into a common whole. And so, for them, no one scripture can speak authoritatively for all of Hinduism. Well, Buddhism, like Hinduism, also does not have one authoritative text of scripture, There are, in fact, a vast number of Buddhist scripture, but those that are considered most authoritative are all said to be the actual words of the Buddha. Unlike those two religions, Islam has but one primary text, and that's the Quran. It's claimed to be the writings of only one man, and that's Muhammad, but Islam also has another sacred text of lesser authority known as the Hadith. Uh, This text contains uh, some of the sayings of Muhammad along with some of his followers. It is fair to say that the Quran lacks a coherent structure and seems to contain a series of sayings and sermons and exclamations and religious poetry. It follows no chronological sequence. It often repeats whole thought systems and seems to want to make the case that its doctrines and truth claims are unrelated to actual historical events. Now, I offer all of this up not to give the idea that this is a critique of these writings, only to say that the Bible is absolutely unique in that it has no actual parallel. Let me suggest five ways in which the Bible is unique. First, the Bible contains real verifiable history, unlike all those other documents. You can travel to the ruins of Caesarea, for instance, and there archaeologists have discovered an inscription. It was written on a stone, and it says, Pontius Pilotus. He actually gets mentioned in Scripture, and more so. Roman historical texts mention him as well. Or travel down the Nile on the walls of the ruins of an ancient temple, and you'll discover the actual date of the beginning of the reign of the Jewish King Solomon. Or dig through the old city of David and discover clay seals with the names of all the officials of the kings, all mentioned in the biblical book of Jeremiah. Whether it's in the discovery of an ancient text, or the description of geography, or the ruins of an ancient archaeological dig, Dr. Craig Evans says that historians now use the Bible as a primary text as they seek to piece together the history of the peoples of the ancient Near East. The Bible actually contains real, verifiable history, something no other so-called holy book has been able to reproduce. Second, the Bible is also unique in the length of time in which it was written. 
It's written over a period probably beginning at 1446 BC when when Moses would have written the first words to about AD 95 when John completed the book of Revelation. Somewhere close to 1600 years were taken in the completion of this book, one writing being added to another until its final completion. Third, the Bible is unique in its unity. It tells one story from creation to the new creation. And it contains a central theme. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. It is the story of a world that fell from God's grace and favor, and of a God who responds with both justice and in mercy in the man he has chosen, Jesus Christ, who forgives and reconciles and brings hope. The Bible tells not only of the fall of the man and the woman, but the fall of the entire created order. And the amazing plot line of the Bible describes how God will make all things whole and is shown in the real events of history. The idea that you could have a progressive plot line to this narrative centered in real history, gradually being worked out over successive centuries, leaves this book without equals. Fourth, The Bible was written over successive generations amid amazing diversity. It was written by over 40 different authors from many different walks of life. Some were kings and others were farmers. Some were highly educated and others had very little formal education. Some wrote in palaces and some in dungeons. More so, the literary style in which the Bible was written varies greatly. Some of it is prose and some is poetry. Some of it contains historical drama, and some comes to us in the form of personal letters. Some contains lengthy genealogical lists, and some elaborate and detailed laws. Some is what we call apocalyptic literature, which means it comes to us in highly imaginative and symbolic fashion. Furthermore, apart from the literary styles of the Bible is the fact that it was written in three different languages— Most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, a few chapters in the Old Testament were written in Aramaic, and the New Testament was written in Greek. And finally, the Bible has now been translated into more languages than any other book in history, and has sold more copies than any other book in history. It has shaped whole civilizations and cultures, and amazingly, it is easily readable, so much so that anyone with adequate reading skills should not only understand it, but can actually be swept along in its plot line. At times, it transcends the time in which it was written, and you feel like it's talking to you today. Now, truth be told, all of that doesn't prove that the Bible is the Word of God. I'm going to readily admit that. Now, I believe the Bible to be the Word of God, but before we set out to prove that, can we at least admit, if God actually wrote a book, you would have to expect that it will be different from any other thing that has ever been written. And that's exactly what we find in the Bible. We find a book written over 1,600 years in three languages by multiple authors, 66 separate writings containing one message that is consistent and coherent throughout, which has been read by more people than any other book, telling the most amazing story ever written. This book has conquered whole nations and people groups, not through war or political power, but by the sheer power of its life-altering message. Many have read it and have never been the same. Clearly, the Bible is without equal.
Now, since this is a series on celebrating the Bible, I want to take the rest of this program and actually retell the Bible story from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end. You know, the Bible begins with a very simple statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, it's very clear from that first line that the beginning is not the beginning of all things, for God himself is a thing. That is, he really exists, and this is not the story of the beginning of God at all. There are numerous examples, especially in the Psalms, where God is called eternal. Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so the beginning spoken of in the first sentence of the Bible is the beginning of the created order. In the beginning, that is, before anything else existed, God created the heavens and the earth. And that, of course, includes the cosmos. But the earth, which, as we know, is just another planet, and yet it is the center of this story. Because this book, the Bible, is not about what happens on Alpha Centauri. It's the story about God's dealings right here on earth. The story begins with God creating all life on earth, and then, last of all, he creates a man and a woman, created in one important sense, unlike everything else that God has made. Man, in a unique way, is said to be created in the image of God. That is, he reflects back to the God who made him like nothing else can. And to man alone is given a mandate. The mandate is to fill the earth as God's representatives with his glory, as an expression of the majesty and the greatness of the God who created all things. The earth is to be full of expressions of the glory of God. And man's unique task is to make this glory of God known in every single area of creation. But of course, as the story progresses, we soon find out that this will not happen immediately. And that's the drama of the history of this earth. The Bible contains twists in the plot line, unexpected happenings, expressions that occur that leave us breathless. But behind all of that, we see the plan of God overtaking and undergirding everything that occurs. The Bible will make plain what God is about as we continue to study it. Today's message so far has covered important ground as we're reminded of the uniqueness of the Bible, especially when compared to every other book considered by some to be holy. As Christians, we stand on the very Word of God, fully confident that it stands the test of time in its authority, accuracy, and in its power to change individuals and even whole societies. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will walk us through more of the amazing storyline of the Bible. As we celebrate three years of ministry partnership with Back to the Bible India, we are blessed to report the Bible teaching program with Dr. John Neufeld is being heard across India and throughout much of Asia, including the Middle East and China. We're also excited to announce that we're continuing our pastor's Bible teaching conferences with this year's conferences taking place in Delhi and Hyderabad in June of 2019 providing training in expositional Bible teaching and encouragement to Indian pastors. Your prayers and support make both the Bible teaching program and the pastors' conferences possible. So this month, would you consider your support for these initiatives with an international ministry gift? For this international campaign, we're pleased to let you know that any gift today of any amount will be matched up to $25,000. 
Here is your chance to double what your gift can do around the world. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or give online at backtothebible.ca. After explaining the count of creation, the Bible moves very quickly to the rebellion of the first human pair and the disastrous consequences that fell upon the human race because of it. Bible teachers and theologians call this the fall in that human beings have fallen from their high calling, the reason for their creation. And in consequence, they have inherited death. Indeed, in a fallen world, nothing works the way it was intended. And the downward journey from the fall is rather rapid. Adam and Eve have a son who murders his brother. As humankind increases, so does violence and man's inhumanity to man. But there are some, like Seth, who begins to call on the Lord, and through him, some people follow his example. But the earth is divided into two, godly and the ungodly seed. And the godly seed soon begins to suffer near extinction, but God moves into the situation and intervenes. He sends a flood which wipes out the entire human race with the exception of one family, which represents God's determination never to release the world from its original intention. Well, after the flood and men and women again multiply and they build a city with a tower that reaches to the very heavens. This city called Babel represents the experiment of an entire culture to live life without submission to God. But again, God intervenes and confuses their language and scatters them. And from there, the people of the earth begin to scatter into Africa, Arabia, the Middle East, Asia Minor, and even into Europe. The human story across the globe has begun in earnest. But now humanity is not filling the earth with the glory of God. They're filling the earth as men and women who seek their own way without the great creator. They fill the earth with all the potential of human beings created in the image of God, but also as human beings deeply fallen, and with that comes the rebellion against their maker. But here the story moves from the grand global scene down to one man. God chooses one man, his name is Abraham, as his answer to human rebellion, and this one man will be the conduit of his saving grace to the entire world. This one man will become the father of all who believe and who are reconciled to God. And so in God's story of redeeming and reclaiming the earth, Abraham is given a promise that in the end, his descendants will be as multiplied as the sands on the seashore and as the stars in the heavens. This small beginning will be the defining story of this planet. But to this one man is also promised a chosen people, a blessing and a promised land, the land of Canaan. And as the story progresses, the chosen people, the offspring of Abraham, have now grown to become a nation, but through a series of events, this nation has become a slave nation in Egypt. Rather than inheriting a great destiny, they are a nation oppressed by a superpower. How can God's promises come true now? But God raises up a man, and his name is Moses. Moses is not only given power by God to reduce the oppressor nation Egypt into a place of helpless submission to God, but he promises to lead the descendants of Abraham to the very land which has been promised to Abraham. And so the nation, which now comprises of about two million people, will go to Canaan to inherit the promises of God, promises that were given some 400 years earlier. They would be a nation with a mandate that will set the stage to fill the earth with the glory of God. 
Now, before this nation arrives in Canaan, they must walk down the Sinai Peninsula and encounter the living God at the foot of Mount Sinai. There God meets them and gives them the Ten Commandments, which will form the basis of the kind of people they are to be. There also they will receive the pattern for their worship, everything from the nature of their tabernacle to how their priests are to function, to the nature of animal sacrifices, and the knowledge that their God is holy and he is not to be trifled with. You know, what happens in Sinai represents a covenant, God's binding agreement with his people and the pattern by which they must live. And after two years before the mountain, establishing the future life of the nation, they begin to make their journey to the promised land. But when they arrive at the borders of Canaan, and hearing that the inhabitants of Canaan are militarily strong, Israel becomes frightened and mistrusts the promises of God. They abandon their call from God to become a nation that leads the way to fill the earth with the glory of God. But again, God intervenes for his purposes will not be frustrated. Eventually, that entire generation will die in the desert of Sinai, but their children will enter the promised land led by the man Moses had trained, Joshua. He leads God's people into Canaan through a string of outstanding military victories, and after his death, there are still a great many pockets of Canaanite resistance, and a pattern of unbelief and rejection of God follows, in which Israel is acting anything but like the people of God with a divine mandate. But again, as before, God intervenes. His program will not be frustrated, and he raises up another man, David. David becomes the king of Israel, and he wins remarkable victories over Israel's enemies, restores Israel's worship, secures Israel's borders, and ignites a holy passion in the nation to recapture their inheritance in God. And after his death, his son Solomon sits on the throne, but unfortunately, Solomon ends his life in rebellion against God and in idolatry. And following Solomon, the kings of Israel are a mixed bag. Some understand their mission and others overtly reject it. Again, God intervenes, but this time in a way that is utterly confusing. You see, God sends a mighty nation, Babylon, against Israel. They defeat Israel and burn its temple to the ground and exile the entire population to Babylon. If you didn't know how the story ends, you would think this is the end. The promise of a holy nation filling the earth with his glory, a glory that starts in Canaan, is now dead and over. But it is not. God intervenes. Israel returns to the promised land, but still their faithfulness is spotty. Eventually, an order of leaders called the Pharisees and Sadducees become their religious leaders. But as we know, these men are leading Israel away from God. The terrible history of the failure of Israel seems destined to continue. And it is at this time that the greatest intervention of God happens. God himself enters into the human race in the form of his only son. He teaches that the great kingdom of God is at hand and demonstrates it by healing the sick and casting out demons and raising the dead and taking authority over nature and by teaching in such a way that fulfills everything that had been expected and was waited for since the time when the human race first fell from grace. But the rebels against God hate Jesus, and eventually they crucify him on a cross. But because he is God in human flesh, he rises from the dead, triumphs over the death that came into the world through the fall, and proclaims that God has begun his great end-time reign. 
But rather than making all things new immediately, he rises to heaven and establishes a church, which is to learn that the only way to be reconciled with God is to understand that when Christ died on that cross, his death was according to the design of God. Christ's death paid for the sins of all who believed and erased the effects of the fall and allowed God's people to inherit the promises made to Abraham. Indeed, God would reclaim all things for his glory. And with that has come a promise. One day Jesus would return and redeem the earth so that his followers would reign with him forever and ever. In that day, the earth would indeed be filled with the glory of God. Now, of course, I've left so much of the story out, but this is the basic outline, and that's the story of the Bible. The events spoken happened in real history. These events are not theories or ideas or like Greek mythology. This is the story of what actually happened in this earth in real space and time in verifiable history. It's not the story of the spiritual revelations of one man who starts a religion. It is the fulfilling of the purposes of God who worked out the unfolding drama of his purposes in this world. This is the story of God in this world, and this is the only story of how human beings can find peace with God and discover their purpose of living. This is the only real story of hope in this fallen world. John, thanks for today's message. And as you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, what about those people that say, I've heard the message of Christ, I've given my life to him, I believe in him, isn't that enough? What does this Bible really have to do for me? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I need to respond in a way that seems so over the top, but hear me out. Those of you who are married and say to your spouse, you know, I already married you, and why should I get to know who you are or listen to one thing you have to say after all the marriage is already done? You see, that would be a very bad marriage, and it's a very poor Christian life to actually live through life without becoming devoted to a study of Scripture. You can't know God until you know what he's saying. And the Bible contains the very words of God. So I want to say to you, if that's how you're living your life, you need to change. You need to fall in love with the God who made you and redeemed you by learning the word of God. That's my word to you. As we've journeyed through this great survey of the storyline of the Bible, I think we can say it's not only been refreshing, but it's been helpful. We can, if not careful, read scripture and forget the wider context of which it is a part. We discovered that the Bible's focus is God himself and his plan to redeem and rescue humanity. I hope that today's lesson has challenged each of us and reminded us once again that the Bible that we're all privileged to hold is central to our faith and our clear understanding of who God is. Join us tomorrow as we continue this series on celebrating the Word of God with a message entitled, The Word of God and What That Means. Back to the Bible Canada leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. A new issue of Truth In Life magazine is now available, focusing on missions and the international response of Back to the Bible Canada. Truth In Life magazine is available free six times a year, featuring solid Bible teaching articles from Dr. John Newfeld encouragement from author and humorist Phil Calloway, plus a variety of engaging and insightful Bible-based articles. You'll also receive an inside look at all of our ministry activities, events, and more. 
Don't forget to take advantage of this month's International Match Campaign in support of Back to the Bible Canada's partnership in India and the launch of daily Bible teaching programs into multiple languages. The Match Campaign means your gift will be doubled up to $25,000. Call today for Truth and Life magazine and give towards the International Ministries Match Campaign at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.